0: Turn with me and your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We are starting a new study and we're going to do it the Calvary Chapel way, which is verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We'll be going through the book of Acts now. All righty, let's have a word of prayer and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we we love to acknowledge your presence here among us by the Holy Spirit. We pray that as we open the scriptures, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. Help us to understand and hear your still small voice speaking to us because your word to us is life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the Lord Jesus told the most wonderful stories, and we've been talking about some of them, and uh, they were very entertaining, but more than entertaining, they were teaching stories, there was a purpose to them, and most of you know they're called parables, and A parable is a story, like an analogy, to help you understand a little bit uh, better a spiritual truth. And so we've started a new study, as I mentioned, the book of Acts. And one of Jesus' stories really kind of catches the entire theme of that book. In the little story Jesus tells, you get the whole gospel. uh, God's heart, God's purpose, and what he expects from his people. Just in one little story. It's amazing. Uh, He was at a dinner with some religious leaders, and somebody made a comment, and that brought up this subject, and the Lord said, I got a little story for you. All right, so he started, and he said, there was this certain man, and he was preparing a great uh, celebration, a wonderful party, and he invited many guests he prepared a wonderful banquet, and there were personal invitations were sent out, but everybody on the list seemed to start to make excuses. Uh, so One of them said, I have just purchased a piece of property. I've got to go and inspect it so I can't come to your party. Well, that's funny, because you usually inspect the property before you purchase it. Amen. Yeah, so right away we know uh, something's not right with these excuses. Okay, and then somebody else says, well, I've just bought some new farming equipment, and I'm on my way to try it all out. I won't be able to come to your party. And still another said, well, I just got married, and I have no more time or money for any kinds of parties, or whatever they said. All right, I'm tired of parties already. So the servants... Jesus telling the story. So the servants go back to the master who's throwing this big event and says everybody's declining and making up excuses. And so the owner of the estate wasn't very happy. In fact, it does say he was angry at being snubbed. And uh, he says, "Okay, servants, listen, we're going to fill this place. Go out quickly into the highways and byways. Bring in the poor, crippled, blind and lame. Let's kick the doors wide open and whosoever will can come to my fabulous party. They said, Lord, um, the servant said, we've done that and there's still room. And he says, I want you to go back out there and just compel or beg them to come in that my house, my property, this party should be packed. But sadly, seeing. Jesus, the excuse makers won't be even getting one bite of my fabulous feast. And so you see the gospel pretty easily defined there. God's throwing a party, and what a party it is. It's going to go on for a long time. It's called eternal life. We saw a little bit about that as we finished up the study through the book of Revelation in chapters 21 and 22, this fabulous place that Jesus went to prepare for us, this bejeweled city and crystal seas and rainbow around the throne and just this paradise it's called. And, and, and the wonderful thing, it's by invitation only, and the wonderful part of that is that everybody happens to be invited. Sadly, many are declining But the doors remain wide open nonetheless. So, as I said, Jesus' story kind of says the whole thing. A glimpse into God's heart that all will come to know the truth, that all will be saved, be able to celebrate an eternal life, reigning and ruling with Christ, and seeing God dwell with his people, wiping away the tears from our eyes with his very Hand And then a glimpse of the expectations for his servants. What are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be helping him as his inviters in this whole process. So here in the book of Acts, in Luke's preface, he says in my first book, I told you everything that the work that Jesus began to do. And in short, it's really that the Lord came in a body to die for the sins of the world. In other words, so that he could kick those doors wide open and pay for everybody's admission. That's why he says, whosoever, the blind, the lame, the crippled, the good and the bad, he says in another parable like it, because it will have to do with his ticket of admission that he paid. So Luke says, book one, the gospel about Jesus, the good news, was about how the Lord really paid for your way in, to this fabulous feast. And then book two, which is the book of Acts, Acts the sequel, really, how the invitation goes out for eternal life. Now, if you will, Acts to me is like the story of the master's servants who are out there in the highways and the byways doing all the inviting. I mean, who are these people? How do they strategize? Is it hard work? I mean, what's their relationship like with one another? These servants who are all the time inviting, inviting, saving, and inviting. Well, the the news is that those who miss out on the banquet don't just miss out on the banquet. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. And so we've talked about that. So there's a little bit of intensity in the lives of the inviters. So with all of that said, really, we're going to take a look at the book of Acts. It's about the inviters in the story. Their struggles with people who don't want to be invited. Their persecutions. How they suffer in the work of inviting people to, into God's presence and uh, relationship. It's the story of their love for their master and the love of the master's message that saves people. And also the inviter's love for whosoever the master loves, which would be the world. And so the opening verses of Acts, one thing for sure, Jesus says, you've got to take my message because it'll save people. The gospel saves. You're going to be my witnesses, and you've got to take it all through the world. And one thing for sure, the opening verses showed us that they're not alone in the task. The Lord promised power, and that power in form of a person. So let's pick up where we left off. First, the Lord was saying earlier, wait for the promise of the Father, you'll be baptized, with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In verse 8, where we pick up now, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So let's pause there before we break into the rest of the chapter and, Lord willing, finish the chapter. Stop and think what a tremendous privilege and honor it is privilege and honor to represent God Almighty to be as 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1 calls us co-workers with God. He considers us trustworthy enough to leave the task of eternal life heaven and hell in the hands of his people. What a what a privilege What a responsibility. Uh, He's not going to Michael, the archangel, or Gabriel. Everything depends on you and me and on them, the first Christians. There's no plan B. There's only one way the Lord saves somebody. It's through the gospel and the Holy Spirit working through human beings. How many of you heard the gospel through a human being? Raise your hand. Oh, how funny. (laughs) There's no other way. I I, I can I imagine the angels just kind of scratching their heads and saying, seriously, do you know what he's doing? He left it to them. He, He left it all up to them. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize people, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. It's up to them. The fishermen. It's up to Peter, James, and John, and Mary Magdalene. All of these we're going to meet here and see how the Holy Spirit fills their lives, baptizes them, changes them, and through their lips and through their lives bring the uh, life-saving, soul-changing power of God, the Holy Spirit. He says you bear truth. You're truth-bearers. That's who you are. You just tell the truth. You you talk about your experience in me. You talk about what I've taught you, the word of God. And you just give your testimony. And that has the power to determine where somebody will spend eternity. They have to respond. The Holy Spirit is at work but what a power for you to be able to say like the Samaritan woman, come meet a guy who's told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And boom, half the village saved going to heaven because of a, of a woman's testimony. And so God has given us this task. And, and whether you, whoever you are, the word to minister means to serve. So it's the same word. So I do it vocationally. You do it as a lifestyle as I do, too. In fact, being a vocational minister where I share the gospel or shine the light kind of is a hindrance to me. Because as soon as they find out that I'm a pastor, they go, oh, no wonder. What does that mean? Oh, so you discount everything I've said. Because why? Because you have to do that. That's your job. It's your job to tell me about Jesus. Well, I was telling people about Jesus long before it was my job to do so. And I carried my Bible around with me long before I was a full-time minister. And so the overarching theme of your life, if you're wondering, what am I supposed to be doing? He says, you're my witness. You're my truth teller. I save people through your mouth, through your life, through the change. Their soul depends on your engagement in the task I've given you. Not all over the world, necessarily, you're responsible for, but you have a God-given sphere of influence, and he is holding you accountable for those souls. He put you there. He put you in that position because you bear the truth, the life, the experience, the testimony that you open your mouth, and that person's impacted. Well, it's overwhelming. I mean, whether you're, you play football, you know, you, you bow your knee when you get to the touchdown, and then you put John 316 on your eyelids there, you know, and you get 8 million Google hits. You know, that's what Tim Tebow did. It doesn't matter if you're a politician or you like to sing an act or you're a salesman or a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist. If you carry the mail, you carry the truth. And you are dangerous in this world because something could come out of your mouth that changed a person's eternal destiny. And so, yeah, he says from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, I want this to go. And that could be overwhelming. You heard the story, no doubt, of the the big storm that came into the coast and a large school of fish got washed up onto the beach. But a large school of fish and stretched for as far as the eye could see. And everywhere you see, you see all these fish flipping and flopping. And the gills kind of frenzied looking for the water of life. And the boy running along the shore on a rescue mission, picking up one at a time and running it up to where the water came and tossing it in, getting a silly look on his face of happiness, and then running back and finding another one. But there's a gabillion of those fish. And so he passes this older gentleman. And the older gentleman says, man, what are you doing? He says, i got to save all these fishes. And then he says, Sonny, there's hundreds of them. Are you going to get to them all? You really think you're going to make a difference? And he's holding the fish, the kid is. And the the kid says, you know, I'm making a difference to this guy, to this fish. It matters to this fish as I throw it back in. And he gets that look on his face. Your sphere of influence, it matters. We're just talking of fish. We're not talking about, well... My friend, listen, all it takes for you to change your whole mind about what I'm talking about is, is just a little faith that people will go to hell if they reject Jesus. That's all I'm asking you to believe. All I'm asking you to believe that there's a heaven and there's a hell, and if you reject Jesus Christ, you will go to hell forever. That's all I want you to believe. If you really believe that, in your heart, and that the way out of hell is a simple confession of faith and a turning from sin and a yielding to God, if you really believe that, that you have the answer right there and God gave you the task, then we could go to lunch right now. (laughs) You're not going to, but... (laughs) (laughs) We could start thinking about it because that's the start. That's the start to have some kind of passion that you actually believe that heaven and hell, the destinies are being struggled with every day by people you know. You know somebody is going to be cast into the lake of fire. All I'm asking you to believe is that Jesus knew what he was talking when he said that phrase. If you believe that something's got to happen, You'll err on the side of trying to impact somebody when you know their soul is on the line. Not in an obnoxious way, but boy, just, just to, to let the truth be known. And so, yeah, two Saturdays ago on the 13th, at Roner Park, baseball game, an eight-year-old was struck center chest by a pitch he took two steps toward first base and had a cardiac arrest. There were two paramedics that most of us actually know uh, in the stands watching their own boy play ball. And because they were fast, they gave him the CPR that, that he needed. The ambulance came, still flatline, no heartbeat. And they shocked him, and he came to life. But they said, those eight minutes, you saved him. You knew what you were doing. You stepped out. I started thinking about the father of the boy and his feelings toward the man who kept his son alive, saved his son. How does that father and mother feel toward that man That is why I do what I do. I do what I do because there are gills everywhere gasping for life. And I have the answer to save them. And I'm going to try. It doesn't depend on me so much as their response. But I'm going to do my part. I'm going to warn. I'm going to love. I'm going to reach out. Why? Because I know how I will bless the Father of that dying person who shed his only blood, only son's blood because of the love for that person. And so I worship the Lord by when I step out and I say, hey, hey. And I strike up a little conversation with you. Or, or somebody sees me reading my Bible and they make the mistake of actually talking to me. <laughs> I, I mean, then, then we open the door and I'm thinking, Father. And that, that Father could only be just... Wanting to be overjoyed with that man. Bless that man's whole life. You, you see, my boy, you didn't have to step out. What if somebody brought a lawsuit? What if what if this, what if that, what if that? Oh, somebody else could have done it. What if they could have done it better than me? I don't even know what I'm doing, but he did it. And what does the father say? Oh, man, my life to you. So Jesus tells him, I'm with you. Everything depends on this man. Pack the house, man. And you won't have to do it alone. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He will be alongside you. He'll be in you. He'll give you the power. He'll set the whole thing up. All he wants is you to follow with your feet and open your mouth and say what he prompts you to say and care and pray and love. And, 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 and we're good. So verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight and while they were gazing into heaven as he went behold two men stood by them in white robes and said men of Galilee why do you stand looking into heaven this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So let's pause there, and we're going to see ascension and a rebuke. A little slight rebuke, that it's a rebuke. Nonetheless, it's a little subtle, but something's going on there in terms of correcting. Now, the Lord Jesus was fully God and fully man, and when he ascends, he ascends back to the throne, which he occupied before he incarnated into Mary's womb. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He's the God-man. And so in John 17, verse 5, Jesus says, glorify me with the glory that we shared way before the world was even created. So he is ascending now as the image of the invisible God. Now is going to be invisible again. See, he had to have an official ascension because for 40 days, he was popping in and out, staying with them, teaching them, right? So if he were just to disappear, they would think, well, he's coming back like he's been doing, popping in and out. This was the last conversation and the last time any human eye will see God in a body until the second coming. And so he ascends in this cloud of glory, takes uh, him from their sight. Now, Cloud is an unfortunate translation. I don't know what else you would say, but the rabbis called it Shekinah. It's not a word in the Bible, but the concept is there. Brilliant, splendor, luminescent, glowing. It's often described as smoke, burning smoke, flaming fire Uh, in Exodus, the pillar of fire. That's the idea there, blinding, dazzling. You know, we got a a little glimpse of that, didn't we? Scholars say it might be on Mount Hermon, where Jesus brought some of the disciples. They went up, and he's talking about the cross. The cross is coming. This is the glory of God, that the the God-man is going to go on a cross for the sins of the world. So his glory is revealed, and they look at his face, and it says there that his face was shining in the strength of the sun. And so this cloud, it's not cumulus. Don't think of a ball of white fluff, please. I mean, think of this, the, the divine glory, the presence, the brilliance, the majesty, the awe, the splendor. You know, in Exodus 33 um, he, the, uh, Moses said, hey, Lord, please sh- show me your face. I want to see you. I want to see your glory. And he said, now, listen, you can't see my face for no man shall see me and live. I love that. So even the glory that they see as he ascends is, for lack of a better term, dumbed down a little bit for human eyes to be able to see, but even that, When they see that kind of thing, the dazzling white of the angels' apparel on Resurrection Sunday, they fall to the ground and quake like dead men. So this is a big deal. So a lot of glory is going up. And then, uh, you know, Jesus told his accusers that fateful night, the night they were beating God to a pulp, he looked at his accusers. They said, we charge you under oath by the living God, to tell us whether or not are you the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, it is as you say, and heads up, you will all see me on the right hand of power coming in, same word, clouds of glory. And so, you know, this is just a wonderful thing. When they heard that, they said, let's kill this guy. He's claiming to be God the prophecy at the end of the world, uh, Revelation opens with, behold, he comes in the clouds of heaven. Every eye shall see, even those who nailed him to the cross, and all the nations of the world will mourn because of him. Jesus described that cloud as a lightning strike from east to west when every eye shall see. So the angels are just and kind of uh, letting the disciples know in the same way he goes up, one day he will be coming down. And what, what a contrast. What a contrast when he came as a humble servant, as one of us identifying in our place before God to take the wrath of God. He comes in the form of a baby in a barn. What a contrast to what's coming. It's going to be very shocking for some people who think of Jesus as, you know, the little baby in the manger with the swaddling clothes. That's not going to happen the second time. uh, Second Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7 describes the second coming as blazing fire with powerful angels And so we look forward to that. So up and away, he goes in verse 9. You know, Romeo and Juliet, there's a line in there, parting is such sweet sorrow. Sorrow because you're parting, but sweet because they're looking forward to reuniting in the morning, right? So the disciples, they've got the sorrow part, but they're missing the sweet part because they're kind of fixed there. They're stuck. You know, Jesus said... I know my words upset you. Uh, That night he was betrayed, he said, in fact, it's better for me to go away. It's good for you. If I don't go, the helper won't come. Uh, But if I do go, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 4 says that he ascends into the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Well, it's a good thing that he ascends so here are the guys and and maybe we don't get it in English because it sounds like they're just looking what's the angels problems like hey what are you what are you looking at it's like well we just explained how fascinating it was we're looking no they're transfixed and they're stuck and they're forlorn and they're like oh no where you're gone forever and they're straining he's already disappeared and they're still stuck and left there. And so the angel has to remind them about the sweet part. OK, fellas, you know, chop, chop. We've got work to do now. You know, the first coming is over. The sins have been paid for. Those who died in faith during the Old Testament before Jesus paid for them, that they were descended in paradise, all a paradise, Ephesians 4, All of paradise went with Jesus into the Father's presence. And now in heaven, the doors are open wide. So he ascended. He led captivity captive. He brought all of those souls in. And then he sends the Holy Spirit. So this is a good thing. So they're saying, gentlemen, it's all good. Stay focused. He's coming back. It's going to be wonderful. In fact, the Lord returns to the very same spot. Mount Olives where they're seeing him ascend Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 says that the Lord returns his feet touch Mount Olives and it splits in two so it's going to be quite an event and we're going to have front row seats amen all right so moving on verse 12 Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, we call it, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot. You know what's cool about that? The zealot means like on fire, dude, right? And and we don't know one thing about this guy, not one sentence, ever, anywhere. Look him up. It says it says Simon the zealot, a disciple. That's it. Well, I find it fascinating because he's called Simon the on fire guy, and then nothing. (laughs) All right, Simon the on fire guy, and Judas, oh, the other Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord and devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman, women, rather, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Okay, let's pause there. We see some unity and prayer. Now, sometimes to get going in the Christian life, you need to get quiet and still because you need to depend on the Lord. The Lord needs to speak to you. You need to slow down. Sometimes it's not good to rush ahead. You're supposed to wait, and that was the word, to wait. Now, the Bible says they went a Sabbath day journey, which means the rabbis came up with what would qualify as work on the Sabbath, and that would be over 2,000 paces. You were allowed to go 2,000 paces, not in the Bible, the rabbis, they said, after 2,000 paces, you're desecrating the Sabbath, and we'll, we can kill you. So people were really into counting their steps on Saturdays. And in fact, some of them would have string measured out so that they'd let out string so they would always know, I didn't desecrate the Sabbath by walking too far and working. Thou shalt not work on the Sabbath, and that was the rabbinic thinking. So they are All that to say, (laughs) they were three-quarters of a mile or so uh, away. And so they go to the upper room, not any upper room. The Greek has the, as in not just any. It's the upper room. Nobody can say for sure is this the same room. Um, Scholars say that the room, the upper room, was about three-quarters of this size here, and that it was... Indeed, probably the place where Jesus first told them the Holy Spirit would come, the Last Supper. So how cool is that? It's the same room that Jesus washed their feet and said, hey, not long from now, the Holy Spirit will come to you, and I won't leave you as orphans, and he'll fill you, and and you'll see him, and it'll be fulfilled in the same very room. And so we see them all coming together, you know, just beautiful, just beautiful. Who's in the room? Well, they describe, well, first they tell you uh, the disciples are there. Starts with Peter because he's first among equals. He's a leader. So he's always heads. And you're going to see him about to stand up here now. Now, uh, he heads the list. The last name on the list kind of gives you a heads up where we're going. We're going to talk about Judas. But he's, this is a different Judas, and poor different Judas. I mean, his name was ruined by one man. You see? I mean, the Lord had a half-brother named Judas who wrote Jude, but changed his name to the Greek rendering, Jude. And all Judases did that because of the one Judas, Iscariot. Ruin, a perfectly good name, which means praise, praise. And so we're going to talk about him, and so that's kind of why it got stuck there at the end. But by definition, that's who we are. We're connected to community, and uh, they all get together, and the Bible says they're in unity. They're in fellowship, and the Bible talks about what a precious thing that is when God's people get along and love one another. It reminds me of the redwood trees that grow, what, 360 feet tall. And uh, their roots don't go down very deep, only about five feet for something that tall. But well here's what they do. They grow out 100 feet. And they fuse in a grove together so that they cannot be toppled because they don't topple individually. You'd have to topple the whole grove to push one over. The idea here is you see these women these ordinary people, these um, these leaders, all together—the famous ones, the not so famous ones—all together praying, devoted, because the passion for and the significance of what was going on was greater than anybody's ego or opinion or personality in the room. That's what it's talking about. They were together. They were passionate about what God has done in their lives and what God had called them to do. There was no more time for being individuals fussing and fighting and complaining and all of that. Now, how fragile that upper room could have been, thinking about it. I mean, you've got the Lord's bio half-brothers are there. That's what it says. Now, in John 7, we know the, the Lord's half-brothers thought he was crazy. They were unbelievers, and they, they thought he was out of their, his mind, but after the resurrection, the Lord appeared to one or more, and they were converted, and they're at the upper room, waiting on the Holy Spirit. His mother, who can, was conceived conceived by the Holy Spirit God, in her womb, gave birth to the Lord of glory. And raised him and held him in her arms. Does she say anything? No. She's just one of the followers in the room. The brothers are behaved. The the uh, the mom is behaved. The apostles aren't fighting. You know, somebody could have said, "Oh, you're standing up now, Peter. You know, let's talk about that little three cockadoodle doos." What were you thinking? A little girl asks you, do you know the Lord? And you have this big cry fest. Unbelievable. And then I can hear Peter say, it's John's fault. He invited me into the courtyard. He's the one who got me in there. You know, I can just see it going back and forth. None of that happened. Why? The passion for the task at hand, the glory of God, life and death, for souls. Just mattered to them just a tiny bit more than all of this going on. So they came together and they were praying. It was beautiful. Can you imagine? It says the women were there. Who was there? Mary Magdalene with all new clothes, a new outfit. Beautiful. Because she had a change <laughs> of life. We've had Mary and Martha. You know you, you know Mary was not in the room. She was in the kitchen behind and she was making the coffee and having a good time because that's who God made her to be. Zacchaeus, blind Bartimaeus was Lazarus there where the family, the little girl Jesus raised from the dead right, Oh, just the one, those are those are the people who started this and it came all the way 2,000 years from them from that room to this room. It's still happening. It's a beautiful thing and they have taken the baton, and passed it to you and to me. What's a beautiful thing. Verse 15. Now, in those days, during those 10 days of waiting, Peter stands up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 and says, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and yes, he was allotted his share in this very ministry. And by the way, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, 69, verse 25, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And again, in Psalm 109, verse 8, let another take his office. And so point number three, unfinished business here. Unfinished business, what to do and how to think about Judas. You know, that, there was no closure yet. There was no understanding. Can you imagine what, how big of a deal it was to, to, and the elephant in the room, of course, was the missing face, the empty chair. Everybody knew where Judas usually sat. He sat there for three years or so. So Peter, pastor's heart, he wants people to think biblically about tragedy, and all mature Christians do. They go to the word of God when tragedy strikes. When the, when the boat goes upside down, you go to the word to find out what is God saying in all of this. And so Peter, you know, Peter stands up, and he realizes that the Lord had told him personally, hey, Peter, in the new kingdom that's coming, there will be 12 thrones for each of you, and you will judge the 12 tribes. 12 thrones are there, Peter. Peter's thinking, oh, no, there are 11 thrones. The Lord told me there'd be 12, so the first order of business, we've got to deal with getting that throne filled. And so... Uh, But more practical than the practical matter would be his pastor's heart to just to say, listen, I know you're all shaken. Everybody in the room, let's talk about Judas. Let's try to have a biblical understanding because, I mean, think about it. He was with us on the on the boat when Jesus was walking and, and he saw that and he saw Jesus calm the storm. He helped us. He was our friend. He helped us feed the, 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 the 4,000 and the 5,000 with the loaves of bread. He saw it happen. How could this happen? He's one of us. He's sitting there. He sounded like us. When demons went out of people, he was standing there. He was praying. It looked like he was doing miracles. How? How do we understand, Peter, what happened with this Judas? Please help us with all of that. He was one of us. Now he's not. He's dead. He's gone. He, 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 he was a traitor to the Lord. How should we think about this? So, so Peter clears his throat and he says about Judas, he says, God saw it all coming. A thousand years ago. The Lord saw it and wrote it down. Check this out. Now, the Lord, during those 40 days, as I was saying, was teaching them on the Emmaus Road how to find their place and how to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And he started with Moses, and he's saying, hey, look, remember, remember the, the snake on the pole that if you got a poisonous snake bite, all you had to do was look in faith to the pole lifted up? That was me, guys. You remember Psalm 22? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. They piercing hands and feet. And there, you see? That was me. Isaiah 53. That's all about the cross, isn't it? We have all gone our way, each of us, like sheep. But the Lord has laid upon me the iniquity of us all. So Peter now is learning to go to the word of God and try to figure things out. And he goes to Psalm 69, which Jesus had used about himself earlier. And he's, he's thinking, well, maybe there's a clue in here. And he goes, bingo. The first quotation is what, what Judas did. The second quotation is how to handle it, how to handle what he did. And so Peter's a man of God. He's going to go to the word of God. And he says, here's how to think about it. God saw it all coming. And, and here's the point. Judas didn't ruin God's plan. He fulfilled it. Judas didn't ruin the plan. He fulfilled it. Now, before you go feeling sorry for Judas because he was destined, it was a thousand years before Judas lived, he's being talked about through the mouth of David. Well, don't feel too sorry for him because God knew that he would do it and wrote about it. But God destines as we choose. And as we choose, God destines. If, if Judas would have had a change of heart, the psalm would have been different. You would have read a different story. But God's foreknowledge doesn't mean that he is forcing his will in a fatalistic way upon somebody. How it all works is very hard to understand. The moment we're out of this body, I think we're going to be able to do the math. How that he's choosing, we're choosing, and it's working together. But Judas wasn't forced, but God used it. God needed a traitor. He said, hey, open casting call. Anybody want the job? And Judas said, I'll take it. If he changed his mind, he would have been, uh, the whole chapter would have read Differently, and we don't leave Judas' story without the Holy Spirit, who is the author of scripture, giving you the graphic details about how Judas' life ends. It's the Holy Ghost who tells you, by the way, he implodes and his bowels spill out. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. Why? He wants you to connect that fearful, disgusting, tragic end of a life that rebels and resists and hardens his heart to the living God. He wants you to to connect with, I would never want anything to do with a life that ends with that kind of tragedy. And so he puts the fear of the Lord in us in that respect. And the Bible says, through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. Uh, Let's talk about Judas' death because there's two um, scenarios. Let me harmonize them quickly for you, all right? Luke tells us that Judas bought a field with his money, but Matthew tells us that it was Judas' money, but the priest actually did the purchasing. He returns that money. The priests say, we're not touching that money. That's your money, and they buy a field. So Luke is just saying, in essence, he buys, he buys the field. It was his money, He buys the field. Number two, Luke tells us that the body imploded in the field. Matthew tells us Judas committed suicide. He went out and hung himself, which is right. Well, Luke's information, scholars say, complements Matthew's. The body hangs, no good Jews going anywhere near a dead body. That body hangs and it's warm, and the rope breaks, and the rest, shall we say, is history. You can read it if you'd like again. The rope snaps, the body falls headlong, and that's it. Now, there's still yet a third harmonization needed. Uh, The field's name is by the Pharisees name it right away. They buy the field and they name it because it was purchased with blood money. Right, So that's what Matthew tells us. But Luke tells you everybody found out about what happened to his body. And because of that, they named it the field of blood. Both are true. It's officially by the leaders who purchased it, blood money, let's call it the field of blood, and then by the townspeople through the reputation of what they saw, and, and, and there it was. It's pretty much sown in everybody's mind for 2,000 years. Gross, right? We're going to call this the field of blood. And so that kind of brings some harmonization. Practically speaking, let's talk about the Judases in our lives, how to think about them. Now, there are two possibilities with a professed Christian who goes south, only two. One is, is that they are truly a Christian who are in a, an awful, immoral, backsliding state. Still saved. It happens. And they don't look saved, but they are. Number two, they looked saved, but they did not ever connect. And as 1 John chapter 2, and I believe it's verse 19 says, they went out from us because they never really were of us. So the two scenarios, either the Christian is in a backslidden state doing Judas-type things, or everybody thought they were, and they might have thought they were, but they were never really born again, and now it's just evident to everybody. Uh, Does it matter? Nobody really knows, so it doesn't matter. Um, They're in trouble either way. Our job to pray, to hope, to love, and to build bridges But whatever you do, do not lie to them. It doesn't help. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Let's contemporize this and make it happen today that Judas did his thing, but he's alive. And he comes back to Calvary the Rock. How are we going to reach this guy? How are we going to think about him? Now, here's what Judas is saying. He's called a thief in the scriptures. Now Judas is saying, uh, I was born this way. I've been thieving since I was a little kid. It comes really natural to me. I don't intend on changing. You know what? You put me anywhere near the tithe box, you might miss a check. That's who I am, man. I can't deny it. And you guys need to kind of get over that. Um, In fact, the whole world is changing about embezzlement. It's a lot softer. Look at, seriously, catch me if you can. You are rooting for that guy to steal all those millions of dollars, and you, he is so clever, and he gets away with it, and it's based on a true story, and you're happy. Oh, wow. Yeah, Ocean's Eleven. I wanted them to get away so bad. I was like, go, 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 oh, no, no. They just stole millions of dollars. And so Judas comes in and says, listen, the world is all changing. And what used to be embarrassment and hush, hush. Now, I hope you're following me. I hope you're following me. What used to be, oh, that's bad. That's shameful. Oh, now, thanks to media and the TV and the movies, it's it's not only not so bad, but it's kind of cool. Brad Pitt does it. <laughs> and so things are changing. And so some in the congregation say, Hey, listen, Judas, I hear what you're saying. I'm not a thief phobe. I'm not a thief phobe. I'm not I'm not afraid of thieves. God's grace is big. I'm gonna accept you as you are. You know, you know, watch your wallet around me, because I'm not I'm not changing. I have no intention to change. And I think it's okay to steal. Do not change the scriptures to accommodate his thieving lifestyle. Help him change his thieving lifestyle to come under the scriptures. Amen. If you don't say amen, I'm leaving. (laughs) Good. Thank you. Are you tracking with me? This is so important. So very important. It's not helping Judas to lie to him. You may not get along after you wound him with the truth, but you're not helping him by lying. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. What is my job? I'm a truth bearer. So here's what you say in love, if Judas asks. You say, Judas, man, I know one thing, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, has thief in it, in the list. And, and then it says, this is a list of the damned. They're not going to heaven. And, and the thing you love and you're talking about and, and telling everybody this is who you are, you're in the list of going to hell. I love you. If you want to come over for a barbecue, Please. I love you. I'm not holding a sign that God hates thieves, because that's dumb. But I am going to tell you the truth, because I love you, and the truth will set you free, not if I start wiggling things around. You with me? All right. Can we move on now? (laughs) I don't want to. (laughs) I want to still talk about it. All right. Finishing up. One paragraph, I'll make a couple comments about the casting lots. There's a lot to say about that. That was better than first service. (laughs) Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us. Now time to find a new apostle. The whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominate two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, which means born, uh, he was probably born on Saturday, and also known as Justice. Okay, so he's got kind of three names going. And then the simple version, another guy has one name, Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everybody's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go to where he belongs Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. So, interesting incident here. Uh, The requirements for apostolic ministry, you know, by the way, there are no more apostles. To call yourself an apostle is not biblical, because here are the qualifications and requirements. You'd have to have seen Jesus, and you'd been around when John was baptizing. So right there, pretty much everybody's off the list. Amen? Amen. All right, so the requirements, also the nomination of two guys, then there's a prayer, and then they draw straws. All right, let's talk about this. Well, a replacement had to happen, so they said common sense, eyewitness. They had to have seen the whole thing, starting from when we were all getting baptized with John, We we want them to have heard the Lord's teaching, seen the miracles, you know, and most importantly had to be a witness of the resurrection. Why? Well, if you have an apostle who's got doubts of his own, whether Jesus is alive, then they're not going to be a good apostle. They're going to need an apostle. And so we can't have that. So we need somebody who knows that they know Jesus is alive and has been with us from the beginning. So I imagine they're they're thinking... uh, and they look out, and they see two guys sitting right next to each other. And it's like, yeah, Joseph, oh, yeah, but Matthias as well. And so they nominate them both, and they say, let's take a look at these two guys. And so uh, these two guys fit the bill, and so here goes the prayer. Uh, Lord, you know the heart. We see two committed Christians here, but you know you got x-ray vision. So you tell us, who would you choose? Which which two would make the better Apostle, and then they roll the dice. Well, that's kind of what it is. And uh, not in a haphazard way, the winner comes out to be Matthias. Now, first of all, they, they, they were thoughtful. We need some qualifications. They thought, right? And then they gave it some more thought and selected two. And then they prayed, like Jesus prayed, before he chose the apostles, and then they did something the Old Testament talks about 70 times. They did something very Jewish in their culture, the way that God used to answer prayer. And they cast lots. Now, no one really knows what it was. It was either sticks or stones or a dice type thing. But we do know Proverbs sixteen thirteen says, and I've changed the words a little bit. We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. So the Old Testament, it seems like the Lord was bending over backwards to kind of help people to understand his will. So, for example, the high priest had that what was called the the umim and the thamim. And there were little stones you could get yes or no from. And they were in the pouch. He'd reach into his heart and pull out the answer from the Lord. And so we see it. You know, in the Old Testament as a legitimate means, you know, they divided up the promised land or casting lots after prayer and all of these considerations. The Roman guards cast lots for Jesus clothing Um, and Jonah, you know, uh, there was a big storm and it seemed very divine. And so everybody's on board like let's cast lots and figure out who the problem child is. And they did. And guess who got the long straw? And so rolling dice is sketchy to find God's will, but um, it was what they did before. The obeying God, being in one accord, worshiping uh, their hearts right, loving one another, praying to God, uh, fellowshipping, seeking the Lord, looking to the word of God. And that's really the only way, if the lot worked, that's the only way it did. Now, some commentators say, they made a mistake, they could have waited one verse, one verse, boys, and you would have had the day of Pentecost, and then you all would have found out that the 12th apostle is the apostle Paul. Now, and they say, well, you know why? Because Matthias is never heard of again. Well, neither are the rest of them. There's only James, James, John, and Peter, the only ones you'll ever hear from again. Philip, Matthew, Bartholomew, the other James, the other Judah, Judas. Are they duds too? Just like, no. So uh, it's really hard to say. For me, you know, we're going to find out. You know when we find out? In heaven, the foundation of this beautiful city has the 12 names, 12 names. So either that 12th name is going to be Paul or Matthias, you know what, I'm just happy I'm going to get to walk by and look myself. <laughs> I'm just happy I'm not going to be around, you know. And, and, and the whole point for me is that I want others to be able to be that close to see the name in a bejeweled city with these gemstone foundations, undeserved mercy, just because somebody invited bore witness to the truth reached out to Judas in a a biblical way. And Judas responds because Judas can respond as long as there's breath in a body. God is willing that none perish. And so it's a beautiful thing to be an inviter, to have the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives and to hear his joy when one person, through our little effort, Turns, there's a celebration in heaven, he says. Let's be a part of that. We want to be the cause of a lot of joy in heaven and uh, make the Lord, our God, happy and joy-filled. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the awesome privilege of knowing you and having the keys, to the truth, the knowledge of how to get to heaven and stay out of hell. Oh, Lord Jesus, give us a burden. Oh, we need to want to. We need to change our hearts, God, that we believe your word, that we sense the the danger, and that we reach out and get out of our comfort zone and share the word of life, to hold it out amidst the crooked and perverse generation, the word of life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.